You're listening to an Axe Church sermon. Axe Church is located in Camas, Washington. You can find out more about us at www.axecamas.org. Check out our other sermons and podcasts. You can find them on iTunes Podcasts, SoundCloud, and our website. This sermon was preached by Pastor David Robinson, who is the teaching pastor at Axe Church. We hope you enjoy the sermon, and we hope that the Lord blesses you through it. It's a blessing to be here with you today. If you're new, we're especially glad to have you. Not that those of you who aren't new, we don't love, but I like the new people more. It's just the way it is. Um, No, we're glad to have you here because we exist for you. We're here to see more and more people come into the body of Christ, come to know Jesus Christ. If you're here and you're a skeptic or you're just trying to check things out or see what this is about, we just welcome you here and I hope you get the chance to meet some of the folks here in this room because they are great folks, Uh, not because they're naturally great, because of what Christ has done in our lives. Uh, It's an amazing thing and so I hope that you get that opportunity. Uh, Lord willing, we're going to finish 1 Thessalonians today. Now, if you were here for Acts, you know that took about, I don't know, three years or so. And so, First Thessalonians in a few months, hey, I'm getting faster, all right? Um, I talk fast, so maybe that's why, I don't know. But um, we are, are going to try to get through this, this book. Uh, we're not going to f- go to the next two verses that I have, which was 11 and 12 of chapter 4, if that's what you've been studying for this week. I'm not going to do that because one of our elders, Scott Robertson, is going to be preaching on work in a month or two, a couple months from now, and I want him to be able to use those verses for that. I don't want to step on what he might be doing. And then, of course, Pastor Dave, a couple weeks ago, preached through the rest of chapter four and the first part of chapter five. So what we're going to do is we're going to be reading from chapter five uh, at verse 12 through the end of the chapter, okay? And here's the thing for today, because it's kind of an interesting little passage. What I want you to see, and I think this passage really can show it if you're looking for it, is the heart of this chapter. I want you to look past the words on the page and the fact that it's in this, you know, book that, that you call the Bible and the fact that it's, you know, almost 2,000 years old um, and, and just see it for what it is. What you have happening here is a letter inspired by the Holy Spirit written by Paul that is from the heart of God and of Paul towards the Thessalonian people. It's, it's, a, it's, it's about loving them. He loves these people like brothers and sisters, like a parent. He loves these people, and he's writing them this letter because he, he can't be there. He's leaving them in God's hands, and, and, and the, the love is real, and the passion for them is real, and yet he can't be there, and so he's got to write them this letter. And it's kind of like if any of you have ever had a child leave, right, go to college, get married, whatever it may be, and, and maybe you wrote them a letter, Maybe some of you are just dreaming of the day when your kid will finally leave and you can write that letter. Some of you are laughing, others of you are crying. I, I get it. Um, take him out of the basement. It's, it's not worth it. Um, <laughs> oh, Americans. All right. Um, so we, uh, we want to give the best that we have, right? We want to give the best wisdom that we have to those who we love. And, and here's the thing, because what we're going to read is like kind of a series of these commands, a series of these things that, that God's telling us to do. And if you read them as rules, I think you get one sense of it. But if you read them like it's a letter from a parent to a child, a parent who loves their child and is urging their child towards, you know, don't take any wooden nickels and never, you know, play the lottery and do whatever you would say to your kid, right? Those things, those feel less like rules and more like something that's coming from the heart of your parent, 
right? And so Paul is urging the men and women in the body of Christ in Thessalonica as a parent would, as a parent would their child. Some of you know that my own daughter, Corey, uh, has become a young woman and is planning on getting married in June. Um, And so I will be dealing with uh, my daughter leaving the house, uh, assumedly. You are going to live somewhere else, right? Okay. (laughs) To add insult to injury, she's marrying Glenn Cook's son. I'm kidding. It's not an insult or injury. Jonathan's a good young man, or else. Um, (laughs) As Corey starts her new life, there's a lot of things that her mom and I want to not tell her, hopefully, for the first time, but remind her of, right? There's things that we want to say to her. That's what Paul is doing here in this letter. It'd be like the child who's getting married, the child who's going away. He's regularly, throughout this letter, referred to these Christ followers as his brothers and sisters. Brethren means brothers and sisters, right? And he said these things. He said, we were, he, he said, we were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. He said, we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. So he feels like a parent, and he feels like a brother and a sister, and he can't be there, and his heart hurts the way your heart would hurt if you couldn't be near your loved ones. But he's giving this letter. Now, there's a letter that I found um, that I thought was, it's written by a Christian mother, a woman named Ann Voskamp. You may have heard of her. I don't know. But uh, she wrote this letter to her son. It's kind of long. It's going to take me a couple minutes to read through it. But it's so similar to what Paul does here, and it expresses the heart of it. And I want our, I want our minds and our hearts to be in the right space as we read through this. So I'm going to read this letter to you. This is from Ann Voskamp to her son who is leaving Dear son, who is called to climb a thousand walls, you have to know how your unfolding from me was a miracle. That's the miraculous thing about miracles. They really do happen. How is it in this crazy holy world does a girl woman bear a boy child? How does she raise a squalling boy child into a man? I've never been one of those. And this is the thing. There's only so much time to go from point A to point B. How did I waste so many days? How do I make you know everything you need to know before you go? How to love a woman and when to say yes and when to wear black socks instead of white? Dad, uh, my my grandma didn't get that one done. So, um, and when to ask for directions? Oh, again, um, and when to say no. That you'll be radical about grace and relentless about truth and resolute about holiness and vows and the real hills worth dying on. That you know how to make a bed, how to make a child laugh, and how to write a letter home. Did you know right when they laid you, you wrinkled in my arms, you had this curl of hair, this swirl of hair on your forehead, you got it from me. That turning, swirling cowlick that I got from my dad, who got it from his mother. This is how these things go, turning around and passing torches on. I turn around and you're 16 and you're leaving for a jet plane at 3.30 a.m. When the first time you ever get on a plane, you fly for the jungles of Indonesia, the farthest away from us on this spinning blue marble, your father says this farm won't be big enough to keep you anymore. When he says it, he says it a bit like something hurts inside. He's made his life about showing you what real leadership is, not climbing higher towards power and status, but bending down in prayer and service. He's been dead to all ladders, and that's what made him so alive. Reaching down to the lonely, the lost, and the least, 
I roll all your shirts and stack them one upon another like all the years and know that this is just the beginning of the leavings. I bite my lip hard and try to be brave like the day you were born. How could my mother take so many U-turns and still get here so fast? I hadn't known how fast the wings would come and that you would fly into the dark, into the sun, and so soon that when you became a man, I'd feel so empty and so very fulfilled. I wish we had read even more books and I had said yes to every game of Scrabble. The Bible's true, son. Every infallible, sword-sharp, breathing word of it. Don't let anyone ever rationalize one beautiful iota of it away. Love it because it's your life. And the only life living is a scandalous one, scandalous love, offensive mercy, foolish faith. Kiss babies. Always have one friend that feels on the fringe that you have to pray to love that makes the neighbors scratch their heads. Stubbornly pray for your enemies till you see enemies are an illusion and everyone is a friend and somehow grace. Believe in every woman's God-sized dreams and rub her feet at the end of the day. Be the kind of person who apologizes first because that's the only way happiness can last. And never forget that happiness is when his word and your walk are in harmony. Never stop keeping company with Christ and all the sinners, tax collectors, and castoffs. Be an evangelist and use your words with your hands because you are part of a body and never stop loving God with all your heart, mind, and soul and loving others as yourself. Make that your creed. It's true, son. Be different and know everything you do matters. It's what the Christ followers know. One man with God can change a culture. God didn't put people in your path mostly for your convenience. He put you there for theirs. Loving the poor will make you rich, I promise. Only when you offer yourself as bread broken and given to a hungry world will you ever be satisfied. The only life worth living is the one lost. And no matter how loud and crazy and broken the world is, child, let joy live loud in your soul. And believe that you are his beloved. It's only when you trust he loves you that you really begin to live. Really count a thousand blessings more. Never stop. Why wouldn't you want joy? Sing to no one and everyone on the front porch in the rain and laugh so much they question your sanity. Pet the dog long because really none of us knows how long we have. Remember that a pail with a pinhole loses as much as the pail pushed right over. A whole life can be lost in minutes wasted, in the small moments missed. None of this is forever grace. That's why it's amazing grace. Do it often. Grab a lifeline by stepping offline. You'll see your true life when you look for your reflection in the eyes of souls, not the glare of screens. This is what you always need to know. You have nothing to prove to anyone. If you're in him, you're already approved. Be okay with not being liked. Life is not about applause. It's about altars. And be okay with not being seen or heard. It'll let you see and hear better. It's late when you lay your Bible on the last of the packed clothes and check off the last thing, thinking you've remembered everything. I know I've forgotten something, many things. This parenting gigs an experiment in radical grace, and the work of every parent is to fully give to the child, and is the work of every child to fully forgive the parents. This is how it turns, a torch passing from one to the next. Remember that we made meals and beds and mistakes and memories, and look hard for the good ones. You zip up the suitcase, I try to keep it in, what's blurring and spilling. 
that no matter the road or what paths you cross, wear the call to his sacrificial, radical way. You've taken hold and I'm letting go. Maybe that's what I'm trying to say. I will never stop loving and letting you go. A mother and a child live the first great love story. And there is no love story without loss. And this is always gain. Remember this no matter where you fly. Love your mama who believes in the thousandfold miracle that's all grace. I don't have much more to say than that. She is good, um, a great writer, a great letter. And if you can feel the heart that's there, you'll start to understand these letters that sometimes seem like they're written in sort of stilted language that are written a long time ago to these churches. These are not just lists of rules for people to follow. That these letters are much closer to what you just heard from Ann Voskamp to her son, who she adored, than they are a, a way to make people obey certain things or fall under certain rules. It's in that spirit that this letter is written. So let's read the end of this letter to the Thessalonians from Paul. We're going to start at verse 12. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat next to you somewhere um, in the back of those little pockets. If you don't have one at home, feel free to take one of those home with you. Chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, starting with verse 12. And we urge you, brethren, that's brothers and sisters, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. And admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who, will also, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. You feel it? Do you see the similarity between those two letters? One from a mother to her son and one from Paul who was there to see that church begin to his beloved brothers and sisters who he's raised up like a parent. And the kinds of things that they say are so similar and the heart in which they say them is so similar. The desire to see the best for them. The desire to see them grow and live in peace. Now we're going to hit through a number of those specific urgings today in our sermon. And we're going to kind of walk through them. But I want us to take each one of these. And instead of thinking of it as some sort of uh, command or rule that's cold and distant is to think of it much more like something that God has given us as his children in a letter that he's written to us as we head off to college. And that letter that he's written as we have to kind of do some things on our own and grow as opposed to this distant command that's coming from some distant God. See, it's easy for me and I think for a lot of us to just see things as rules. This stuff in the Bible is the stuff that we do so that God doesn't get mad at us, Right? We got to do the right thing or God's going to be mad at us. 
Or we got to do the right thing because what will people think of us? If I don't look right or act right or do whatever and I come into church on a Sunday, what are they going to think? What are they going to say about me? Right? Things that we do to try to measure up to some standard. But that's not what this is about. That's not the heart of this. This isn't about do this because if not, zap. It's not God's heart. It's do this because this is my will for you and I love you and I'm giving you the best that I have. The best that I have. God loves you passionately and intensely and he wills the best things for you and so he's written through Paul this letter to you. This is not a letter from an angry God or a heartless dictator. These are instructions from the heart of a father, of our father. So let's walk through the passage, a couple of the pieces in it. It starts with, and we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. There's a lot here in this little section. I could certainly do a sermon or two just on this, but here's the thing. First thing that just pops out. Leaders are called to be hard workers. They're called to be hard workers. Recognize those who labor among you. Recognize those who are working hard for you. Leadership is service, period. There's no other kind within the economy of Jesus Christ and his church. There's no other kind of leadership but service. And anyone who thinks that leadership is about ladders, about climbing over other people, about getting your way, you're in, you've been looking at the wrong leaders. And you're in the wrong place for that kind of leadership. Leadership is about service, serving, washing feet, not raising up, kneeling down, crying with those who are crying, Rejoicing with those who are rejoicing, cheering for those who are succeeding, comforting those who have faced failure. That's what leadership is, service. I know that there's a lot of people in this world that look at leadership very differently, that look at it as a way to, to tell people what to do, look at it as a way to gain glory and applause for themselves, but there's nothing Christ-like in any of that. That's not what leadership is. And, and when he's talking about recognize those who labor among you, he's saying recognize the leaders. You know, Paul would have, would have set up an eldership in that church. He's saying recognize the people who are, who are pouring themselves out for you, not the people who want to stand above you and look down, but those who are serving you. See, when I was a young man, I was a bit of a bottom head. Since my mom's here, I have to say bottom. Um... I was a bit of a bottom head, um, and I would sometimes put people down to embarrass them and to make myself feel better or to get a laugh at their expense. Some of you are thinking, wait a second, don't you do that to Glenn every week? <laughs> <clears throat> no, it's not the same. <clears throat> Here's the difference. I love Glenn with all my heart, and he knows that. I serve beside him, I would lay my life down for him, and he knows that. And so the relationship that we have can go back and forth. He knows that everything that I say, I say in jest and in love, and that all of you love him. It's a very different thing than when you're in high school and you embarrass somebody in front of everybody for your own benefit. 
which is what I used to do from time to time. That's not leadership, right? Pushing other people down to try to raise yourself up is not leadership. It's just evil. It's just evil. Um, The world wants to lord authority. Some of you have a boss at work, and you know what I'm talking about. Some of you have been pulled over by the wrong police officer, although most of them are great, great folks. Every once in a while, you get the wrong one, or security guard, right? And they are just, they don't even know what to do with themselves. They're just so puffed up with their own authority, right? Or teacher, or whoever, right? Lawyer, doctor, doctors, oh my gosh. <laughs> Any doctors in, in here? All right. The worst, right? No, I'm kidding. I have friends that are doctors. They're, they're, some of them are okay. Um, but <laughs> I'm not going to lie. They're not all okay, okay? <laughs> you know who you are if you're listening to this. Repent and become a lawyer. Okay. So you know what it looks like when someone's drunk on their own authority. That's the opposite. That's the opposite of what leaders in the church are supposed to be. We're about loving people, not about being above people. Not about being above people. It's about playing your role. And as a leader, oftentimes that role is something that that most of the stuff you do is stuff that nobody sees. Stuff that nobody sees that you do so that the body can move forward. Stuff that nobody sees that you do so that some brother or sister of yours can move forward. When I played football as a young man, I was a lineman, as some of you know, which means I wasn't very good. or was not too slow, really, was probably the, the issue. And we, and we uh, our job was to block for the people who had the ball, right? So the whole thing was service, right? I don't get the ball. No one's handing me the ball. They're handing somebody else the ball, and they're like, you go push people out of the way so that the better-looking, faster guy can get a touchdown. Okay, fine. I'll do that. Still get to be on the team. Great. We're playing a game. Um, I went to McLaughlin Middle School, or Mac High, for those of you old schools, Coove people. Um, and we were playing Shumway, which I don't even know if Shumway exists anymore. Um, I mean, it's, the building's there, but I think it's called something different. But anyway, they were kind of our rival. Eighth grade football, right? And we're playing, and this is just a beat-em-up game. We come down to the end of the game, and we're down by six. And when we're on the 10-yard line. We had driven down to the 10-yard line, we, and we have like less than a minute left, and we need to score. This is one of those... Storybook situations, right? And we call the 39 quick pitch. Now, the 39 quick pitch was a play where we would throw the ball, we'd pitch the ball to my buddy, Matt Shaneline. And Matt Shaneline would run kind of around the outside. Well, I would come out from where I was and run around and run in front of Matt and try to block whoever's trying to tackle him so you get in the end zone. So we call the 39 quick pitch. Usually a pretty good play for us. End of the game, final seconds, right? Tick, tick, tick. You know, throws the thing. Here I come running, you know, around the thing. That's why I was a lineman. I ran like that. And I come down there, and there's somebody, you know, somebody come to get out. And I mean, I come in, I block this guy. Matt goes in, touchdown, elation. Yeah! There's like four people there, right? But we were very excited. It's middle school football, okay? Not exactly on TV. Um, we're very excited. If you've never experienced winning a game at the very end, I feel bad for you because it's amazing. It was an amazing day. We're jumping, and we're, you know, whatever. Okay, great times. Shomoy deserved it. They were a rival, and we were glad to beat them. Okay, but my role in that, nobody else but me knew what I did. Everybody's watching Matt. Why? He had the football. 
He was the fast, good-looking guy with the football. I was the guy who was running out to try to knock somebody over who was trying to get him, right? It's service. It's not about being seen. It's not about whether or not you're getting credit for the thing you do. You do it, and I did it for Matt so that he could score a touchdown, and I did it for the team so that we could win. And ultimately, we're all lifted up by every single person. There are 11 guys in that field. Only one of them had the ball to score the touchdown. Everybody else had to do their job. Leadership is about being willing to be one of those other 10 guys or girls. We didn't have any girls on the football team at the time. They do now in some, some teams, but we didn't then. It's about being one of the other 10 when somebody else is scoring the touchdown. It's about being all about them and seeing their success because that's their day and big deal and great, right? And being willing to just block and put your nose in the mud to see the team win, right? See the body of Christ move forward. We got to do our part. And we don't look for adulation for it unless you preach a sermon about it 30 years later and want everybody to know that you blocked for that 39 quick pitch. (laughs) Just want you to know it doesn't happen without my block, okay? I'm just saying. But here's the thing. We understand this, I think. We've taught a lot at Acts Church about leadership as service. But there's one part of leadership servant leadership that a lot of us struggle with. And that's one of the things talked about here when they use the word admonish. Scripture talks about admonishing. Admonishing. Leaders are called to admonish. This is what Microsoft Word, when you just click synonyms, these are the synonyms for the word admonishing. Reproving, cautioning, reprimanding, rebuking, reproaching, scolding, chiding, and warning. Now, this is where we run into problems in our very independent, self-governing culture, right? We're Americans. Nobody tells us what to do. Nobody calls us on our stuff, right? By the way, it's not just Americans from the Northwest that struggle with this, okay? Or God would not have been urging the Thessalonians to deal with this 2,000 years ago. This is a human nature problem. We don't like accountability. We don't like the idea that anyone would have authority over us. I mean, just the idea. (laughs) It's very upsetting. Right? We just don't like it. We don't like it. And so they struggled. And us Americans in the Northwest in 2019, we struggle with it too. Maybe worse than some. We're pretty independent out here. And people have become so afraid these days to exercise proper spiritual authority. They're afraid of people. We don't want to say anything that could be interpreted as rebuking or reprimanding because what if people leave the church? What if they leave? Now, you have to remember, put yourself in in Thessalonica in the first century. You come up to me. I'm out, you know, whatever, doing something I shouldn't be doing. I come to church just totally hammered, you know. Or I'm, I'm in the back drinking the communion wine, whatever. And you're like, you shouldn't be doing this. I'm like, oh, who are you to tell me? And I march. I'm just going to go down to the church down the street. There was no church down the street. It was just them. There was nowhere to go. You got along or no, you just had to get along. You had to figure it out, right? There was no other option. If you're a Christ follower, you're going to be in his church and there was only one. Now, pastors are so worried about exercising their calling to sometimes 
reprimand, to sometimes admonish. Because what if somebody goes out and they don't have to walk far? A couple streets, right? Maybe a mile. And what do they find? Here's another church. And maybe these leaders won't admonish me for my stuff. Right? It's a fear. It's a very unhealthy fear. It's a very unhealthy fear, but it is a fear because we are so against being called out. So against it. I mean, people will leave a church because they don't like the color of the curtains, let alone being admonished, rebuked, reprimanded, reproved. They don't like that, right? They go look for somewhere where that's not going to happen, where it's not going to happen. Now, we don't like accountability. That's true. Now, this was written to new believers. They would have struggled with this, with accountability. This was written to new believers. But some of y'all old. Some of y'all been in church a long, long time. And you struggle just as much as a new believer with this. In fact, I'm not sure that I haven't had as much or more issues with people who have been in the faith a long time than I have with new believers who really struggle with not getting their way, who really struggle with being reprimanded or reproved or even having it suggested to them that they aren't perfect in every way. Something to think about. Some of you are like, wait a second. I thought we were Protestants, like Protestants. So we're against all that leadership. We left the Catholic Church and, and all that leadership. I'm using like a southern accent now because that's just kind of how I see this person. Right? <laughs> I'll tell you what. Don't take any of that. We left all that, right? We're Protestants. We're allowed to take the Bible and we just interpret it by ourselves. And nobody gets to tell me what it says. And it's just me and the Holy Spirit. And that, that's just nonsense. That's not what Protestantism ever was. Okay, the church at the time, and there was no Catholic church, it was just the church, okay? The church at the time had major leadership problems where they were doing really evil things. The Protestants weren't saying, from now on, everybody's their own interpreter of scripture and there's no authority and there's no leadership. And there's no, that's not what they were saying. They were saying, we're not gonna go sell indulgences. Let people come pay you some money so they can go do something really bad and it's gonna be okay with God. I mean, there's some messed up stuff going on. Okay, that's what they were protesting. They weren't protesting the idea of authority. Everybody has to have different parts. All of us have to play our own roles. God has called some to leadership, servant leadership. Servant leadership. Don't get it messed up in your head. It's servant leadership, but it is leadership. And there is a call to admonish, and there is a call to sometimes rebuke. There's a call to sometimes exercise authority in the Holy Spirit. And I know that we don't like that. People, I've, you know, I've been around people who, they get so fed up with evangelical Christianity's view, some evangelical Christians' view, that they can just take, that anybody can just take the Bible with no training and maybe not even that much work and interpret it and say that their interpretation is just as valuable and valid as a professor of New Testament studies who's been studying it for 50 years, who can speak Greek 
in Hebrew and who can do all the rest of that. But theirs is just as good. And the thing that's, that they really don't like about it is that the interpretation that those people get of the scripture seems to always suit their jacked up lifestyle. It's like, man, that's amazing how you're always able to interpret it in such a way that you can continue being a hypocritical sinner. Like, oh yeah, I'm pretty good at that. That's not it. Now the Holy Spirit does guide you in studying scripture. Don't hear me wrong. You should study this for yourself. You should let the Holy Spirit speak to you. But the idea that, that there aren't people who God has put in your life to help teach you the scriptures is nonsense. You will not find that idea in the New Testament where Paul's just like, go, do whatever you want. No, he's teaching. He's writing the Bible, right? Okay, I don't want to get too far. I just have had friends who have literally left Protestant churches and gone either to Catholicism or they've gone to Eastern Orthodox or they've gone to something like that because, and I don't think it's about theology. I think they're so fed up with private judgment, with the idea that everybody comes in here and thinks that they're completely on their own, they're completely autonomous, that it's not a body of Christ with Christ at the head and establishing leaders and establishing all of us to do our part, but rather every one of us is our own little body of Christ and we do whatever we want, whenever we want. And there's no authority, and we're not called to a church, and we're not called into a body. We just do what we want. We interpret it how we want. Let me just tell you, that's not true. And if you try it, and I've seen people try it, you usually end up kind of off in some weird places. So that's, I'm just going to give you that one. I'm going to leave that there. I know that there have been leaders in the past in churches who have not been servant leaders, who have not, had the, who have not labored for the people, who have not desired their best, but have been wolves in sheep's clothing. No doubt. Guess what? Those kinds of people existed back in Thessalonica too. There have always been people who will take advantage if they get the opportunity. Your job is to be discerning about who that is. Not to suggest that because some people do that, that nobody could be a good servant leader. You don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Your job is to be discerning. Has God called me to be at this church? Has God called the leadership that's at this church to care for me, to protect me, to labor for me, to cry with me, to rejoice with me, to admonish me, to hold me accountable, to help me grow? That's the question you got to ask. That's the question you got to ask yourself. I'm accountable. I'm accountable to the elders of this church. It's a good thing because I need it because I'm not going to grow without it. That's why the church was originally set up to have a plurality of elders. We keep each other in the leadership accountable, and we help keep everybody accountable because we're looking out for them, because we care about them, because it comes from a place of love. It's not about titles and ladders and being above people. It's about service and love. But sometimes a loving thing to do is to call other people to account, and here the Holy Spirit is saying, you need to respect these folks. You need to respect these folks. Because sometimes, bottom line, sometimes you all need to be admonished, just like me. My wife is an expert admonisher. <laughs> I mean, she's good, okay? Um, seriously, that sounds bad. I'm actually not making a joke here. My wife is actually really good because she knows me really well. And she knows how to hold me accountable. She sharpens me through admonishing me in love. She really does. And anyone who is called to be a follower of Christ should desire to be led by good leadership, especially those who are being called into leadership. 
Those who are being called into leadership should desire to be led by good leadership so they can see what it looks like. Should be desired to be led by those who are led by Christ. So you can see what it looks like to let Christ lead and to let service be the basis of leadership. You should all want that. I want that. You should want it. Last thing it says, be at peace among yourselves. Look, I don't want to run out of time here, so I'm going to kind of have to rip through some of this. Peace, shalom, wholeness, the body of Christ. When we are honoring each other, and I wouldn't say just leadership or just this or that. Everybody, all of you have your parts. All of you are part of the body of Christ. If we're all honoring each other and we're all working together, there's going to be shalom, wholeness, peace within the body of Christ. That's what he's asking for as this parent to the child, right? Be at peace. Be at peace, even when that means you got to be admonished. Next little section here says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Now this is to every Christ follower, not just to leaders. Warn the unruly. Warn the unruly. Just like leaders have become afraid to say anything, so is everybody else. I say, warn the unruly. That means you've got to do some admonishing of your own. And you go, oh, I can't do that. Who am I to tell anybody else what to do? Who am I to do that? Look, if you're wondering who you are to do that, let me tell you who you are. You're a child of God. You are part of a royal priesthood. You are saved, redeemed, baptized with the Holy Spirit. You are people who are going to have eternal life. Do you not know that you're going to judge angels? You're in a place to warn those. You're in a place to warn those who are in trouble, warn those who are walking towards sin, to warn the unruly. But we're so afraid to do it. Well, I shouldn't say that. They'll get mad at me. They might. But if someone was, if we're looking at a street and the bus is coming and our friend is there, and the bus is there. Are you going to do that the way that you do stuff about all the other sin that you see? You see your, your friend in sin. They're getting drunk all the time. You can see their life is starting to go down. But you don't want to say anything because who are you to say anything? Mm-hmm. So you're like, hey, maybe, maybe you should stop drinking. I don't know. I mean, I just don't really know. Maybe you should. That's about as much as you'll do. Is that what you do to the bus guy? Hey, hey there's, a, um, there's a bus coming. What? There, there's a bus coming. What? There's a bam. Dead. Right? If somebody's got a bus coming, you go, hey, let me warn you about the bus that's coming. You're going to hurt. And we, want, we don't want to do that with each other because we don't want to get in each other's mix. We don't want to get in each other's lives. Let me tell you something. You're in each other's lives. You're the body of Christ. You're brothers and sisters. You're in each other's lives. Don't pull any punches. We're not going to move forward by being so nice that we never call each other to account that we never warn each other. And some of you are going, whoa, 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 hang on. I've had issues with this before. And you're wondering, how do I know if it's not a good idea for me to do that? Let me tell you, this is really easy. If you're thinking about admonishing or warning your brother or sister, let me tell you how you know you should not do it if you want to. If it seems like it would be fun. If you're doing it with anything other than pain, sadness, then you're not, you shouldn't be the one doing it. If somebody is doing something wrong and you're like, ooh, I can't wait to get in there, do some admonishing, I'm going to admonish that. You're not the one. You got issues to work on, okay? Like, woohoo, we got problems. If you love confrontation, we need to counsel, okay? It's not good for you. It should be at a heart of, of brokenness for them. 
You should desire to see their best. You should desire to keep it quiet between you and them. You should, you should be in pain at some level for this person. You should be treating them like you would want to be treated. How do you want to be treated? You don't want to have nobody ever admonish you, trust me. What you want is that people would admonish you in love gently and help you. That's what you want. Nobody wants to just keep going mm, down the drain. We need each other. This is what you've been called to do. You've been called to admonish and warn one another. To comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, and be patient with all. Comfort the faint-hearted. Look, there are people suffering from all kinds of stuff in your body. Sherry Ware lost her husband a couple months ago. Others have lost people in their family recently. There's sickness. There's financial trouble. There's people whose kids are going off the rails. There's all kinds of stuff. Family member problems. Difficulties. Comfort them. It's that simple. It's not a complicated one. Comfort the faint-hearted. Find out who they are and walk alongside them, encourage them, and show them that Jesus loves them and he loves them through you. Comfort the faint-hearted. Uphold the weak. The weak, I think this is probably a reference to duck and cougar fans. I haven't checked the Greek. That's all I'm going to say about that. No, I'm just kidding. That's not who the weak are. We love the ducks and the cougars. Nah. Um, the Huskies are doing great, okay? All right. Listen, who are the weak? This is easy. Ask God to show you. You got a whole group of people here. Some people are weak. They're, they're struggling. They're going through things. They're weak. They need strength. They need to be built up. They need to be discipled. How do you know who they are? Ask God. Who's, who are the weak? Who need me? Who needs me? And then go do what he's called you to do. And if you can't find anybody that's weak, it's probably you. And you need to call God and say, God, I think I'm weak. I need people to come and disciple me. You should always be in a discipling relationship on both sides. Those that you are discipling, those that are discipling you. This is the pattern of the Christ follower, the multiplication pattern of the Christ follower. Uphold the weak. Be patient with all. This one's hard for me. Sometimes. Sometimes. The other day, I was cleaning up the house. Cleaning up after my kids, right? I occasionally get up after my kids, and when I do so, I like to do it very loudly and dramatically so they know what a great dad I am. <laughs> so I come in, I'm like, this thing, I'm going to grab that and take it over. There. And, you know, I'm taking this thing, and Ethan comes downstairs while I'm cleaning up this stuff. <coughs> and he asks me some question. I'm like, I don't know, Ethan. I'm too busy cleaning up your cups off this table. <laughs> you know, walking over, he's like, I don't, uh, I don't think those are my cups. I'm like, well, whose cups are they? Righteous indignation is just like you can smell it. It's coming out of me. You know, I'm just like, I can't believe I have to clean up after these children. They ain't got no job. <laughs> Playing video games all day, and here I am cleaning their crap up. Sorry for saying crap, Mom. <laughs> this has really changed the dynamic for me around here. Um, <laughs> So I'm just clean up after you. And he's like, I don't think that's mine. And I'm, who is it? And it just took me just a second. I realized, oh, that was mine. (laughs) 
I left that jar with half full of milk there like last night and forgot to put it away. And I realized that, and I was just like, ugh. I felt like such, I didn't feel like, I was a fool. I made a fool of myself. I was cleaning up after me and being dramatic about it. I can't believe that I left this. I'm such a, had anyone else done that about my cup, I would have like, it would have hurt my feelings. I would have been really upset about it. Here I am doing it to my own children. I probably should not be a pastor. I, it's too late. I'll, I'll work on it. Patience, right? Somebody cuts you off on the freeway. There's the patient. There's the your number one response. You know, let them know. That's not patience. Some of you are like, well, what do you mean number one? I, I, I'm glad you don't know. God bless you. That's really part of the next one. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. These Thessalonians, they were being persecuted, right? Bad stuff is happening to them. But really bad stuff. Like people are being killed, they're being messed up, whatever. And of course there's gonna be some desire, like let's go get back at these people. These bottom heads that are persecuting us. But not just that. They were also just getting cut off their donkey on the road or whatever. They're just the regular kind of offenses that happen. Right? Somebody upsets them. And it's like, do not pay back evil for evil. We're like, I'm not taking no crud from anybody. I use the word crud because somebody wrote it out there. If you've ever seen out on the front of the school, somebody wrote like graffiti, the word crud. Like you just imagine this child, this homeschooler probably, comes in, <laughs> you know, got to wipe the essential oils off his hands so he can get... <laughs> Woo! Grab a pen and hold on to it. Comes up to this thing and he's like, crud. <laughs> Other kids are like, what? Because kids say a lot worse things. I don't know if you know this. Homeschooler moms are like, what? Crud? Anyway, I'm not going to take no crud from anybody. That's our thing, right? We're not going to take it. Not going to take it. That's how they were back then too. See, you would lose your status. You let somebody do something to you and you didn't get back at them. You lost your status as a Roman. Sort of like today. You better not let them get away with that. But God turns the world upside down. He's not like that. He's like, no, no, no. You don't repay evil for evil. You let me take care of it. If you trust me, you know I'll take care of it. You don't get to take care of it. I want you to love your enemies. Like, what? They're my enemies. I, th I don't think that word means what you think it means. They're my enemies. I ain't going to love them. It's like, no, you're going to love them. I'm commanding you to love them, to forgive them, to treat them well, to pray for them. And here we have it. Don't repay evil for evil. Now, did God follow it himself? Yeah. Guess who was evil and his enemy? You. Me. Did he show us love? Yeah. He came to earth, became a man, died, was crucified for us. And while it was happening, he was praying that they would be forgiven. Not that fire would come rain down on their heads. That was for you. That's for me. He's shown us what it looks like. How dare we think that we get to create enemies for ourselves and not love them when he's shown us what it looks like. Do not pay, repay evil for evil, but always pursue, chase after the good. Chase after it. Run it down. 
What's good? That's what we want. That's what we want. All right. I'm going to try to rip through the rest of these so we can get through this. It says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, test all things, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. I could probably do this from every one of those, but we're just going to go pretty quickly through here. Rejoice always, and, and everything give thanks. I think that hits us kind of like, if you're going through something, you've lost somebody, you're sick, whatever, your kid is in prison, you're, you know, whatever's going on in your life. And you're like, rejoice always, give thanks in everything. Who, what the, what is your problem? How could you think that I can rejoice always and pray without ceasing when I'm going through this? First of all, I'm not the one who said it. God did. I didn't command it to you. God did. So think about that for a second. He wouldn't have commanded unless you could do it. Does this mean you can never be sad? No. Obviously, you're going to be sad sometimes. When bad things happen, you should not be like, hey. That's, you're on drugs if that's going on, right? If you got a big smile on your face, team of I don't know if you guys ever watched that show, but it's like three people who will get that. Um, we'll talk about it later. Anyway, you're going to be sad sometimes. That's why Romans, I think, 12, 15 says that we weep with those who weep. The assumption is that some people weep. The issue is not that you never cry. The issue is that you have enough hope and joy in your heart to believe that God will eventually wipe away all tears that God will make all things new. That's where joy comes from. It's so much deeper than a surfacey happiness, the kind of thing we feel that we go outside and there's sun on our face and we're like, man, what a nice day. That's great feeling, but that's not joy. Joy is deep and abiding. It's a thing that says, I trust and believe God and my hope is secure in him. It's not the thing that says I never have grief. You're gonna have grief. Persecution, suffering. We live in a fallen world that hasn't changed because you became a Christ follower. It's just going to be made new. You just have to believe that all things are going to work together for good. That's why we give thanks. That's why we pray. It says pray without ceasing. Look, to me, I've always thought about this one. You know, it's not, it doesn't mean that you're on your knees all day in intense prayer. I think, I think in a lot of ways, this is two things. One is be constantly in communication with the Lord. Just be, you know, you're driving along and, and God's with you. You're, you're experiencing life together with him. You're talking with him. When you're driving, probably not vocally out loud if there's a lot of people watching you and there's no one else in the car because people think that's weird. Um, I don't know. But if you're like, hey, Lord, somebody's looking next to you and they're like, there's nobody in that car. They might think you're weird. Some of you look weird anyway, so you're probably okay. <laughs> Just be in communication with them all the time. But the other thing is this. Never stop seeking, asking, and knocking. You want it. You believe it's God's will that your child would come back to relationship with him? You think it's God's will that you would grow in this area? Never stop asking, begging, seeking, knocking. Never stop. Pray without ceasing. He's listening. He wants you to come to him and ask for things. Pray without ceasing. All right. I'm not going to deal with the... Um, the quench the spirit and despise prophecies. If you have not been through orientation, you can go through that. We talk a little bit about prophecy in there, but I want to probably handle that when I have more time for it. It also says that thanking God, praying without ceasing, and rejoicing is God's will for you. Some people are like, I don't know what God's will is for me. I don't know what his will is. Well, I can tell you, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. That's his will. Every day, all day long. Don't come to me and say, what's God's will 
for my next move, for my job? Should I get married to this guy? Should I, uh, you know, have kids? Should I do whatever if you're not doing these things first? Because I, I can tell you these are God's will. So be doing these before you start asking. You got to know his will. This is his will. All right. It says, test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. I'm going to do this quickly. Test all things. That's why we do what we do here. That's why we value the life of the mind so much. That's why we teach people how to think well. Because you need to be able to test all things. That means you have need to have knowledge and wisdom and spiritual discernment. We try to build those things up at this church so you can test all things. So you can abstain from every form of evil. The things that are evil, listen, just run. Don't mess with it. Don't get close to it. How far can I go close to it? Look, you've got the wrong attitude. How far can you get away from it? That's the question you should be asking yourself. Well, how much of this can I do before it's... No, no, no. How can I get as far away from that thing as I can possibly be so I can be as close to the Lord as I can possibly be? That's the question you'd ask for yourself. And then hold fast to what is good. Listen, the things that are good, the things that are true, listen. Hold on to them. Do not give up ground. Always have an attitude of love, but culture is trying to pull away from you so many things that are good to replace them with things that are evil. And it is your job to stand upon the rock, the cornerstone of Jesus Christ and say, I am not moving about these things. I am not moving about the fact that Jesus Christ is the only way, the truth, and the life. If I move on that, I lie. I'm not moving on what God wants for us, for our lives, what he wants us to do with our money, what he wants us to do with our sex lives, how he wants us to parent, how he wants us to be husbands and wives. I'm not moving from these things. Just because culture's like, well, no, you need to be this way, you need to be that way, you're not tolerant enough. You've got to say, I stand here, I can do no other, like Martin Luther did. I'm not going anywhere. Hold fast to what is good. Hold fast to what is good. All right. Whew. We've got to wrap this thing up. All right. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may our whole spirit, soul, and body, body, soul, spirit, we talk about that a lot, be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who will also will do it. God is sanctifying you. You know what that means? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. It's kind of a weird word. What it means is he's making you perfect, making you completely holy and clean. That's the work that he's doing in you. And he is going to do it. He's faithful. He's going to do it. Body, soul, and spirit. You'll be made perfect. That's pretty amazing. <coughs> That's what's happening. That's what's happening right now, every day, every moment. As you draw close to Christ, he's doing that for you. This is an amazing thing that Paul is reminding them of, that the Holy Spirit through Paul is reminding them of. Hey, this is what's going on here. Pray for us, they say. And you should. You should be praying for each other. You should be praying for those who are laboring for you, you should be laboring for others and you should be praying. Next one, greet all the brethren, brothers and sisters, with a holy kiss. Don't get excited, fellas. Like, oh, come here, sister. You want a little greeting? You know what I'm saying? No. As a matter of fact, at one point in church history, they had to, apparently had to make this so that it was only same-sex kissing. You know, it was on the cheek or whatever. Guys to guys, girls to girls. Because... People were getting frisky with the holy kiss. They're like, hey, Paul said it. Come on, let's get a holy kiss going. Well, that's an awfully holy kiss. Holy cow, right? <laughs> this is about what we talked about last week. This is about Philadelphia. Culturally, they would have expressed the kind of brotherly, sisterly, affectionate friendship with a kiss on the cheek or on the forehead. It would have been the way. They were much more physical with each other. 
than we are. Right? When guys meet each other, it's very rare that you get together with the guys to go play some basketball or whatever. And before we start, we're all like, come here. Come here, Glenn. Come on. No. We don't do that, right? This is not normal. Some guys do, actually. It's still culturally the way some people do it. In fact, in the Middle East, it's still much more common. People will walk around holding hands and stuff. It has nothing. It's not sexual at all. Just the way that we, we just don't understand it as much. But that's what he's talking about. Philadelphia. Okay? Last thing. I charge you by the Lord. Again, this is leadership language. I charge you by the Lord. He's telling them what to do. Some people don't like that, but that's what he's doing. Let this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. All right, I'm going to finish up here, and we're going to pray. Listen, this is a letter of love. That's what it is. It's a love letter from a brother, sister, parent, whatever, to the beloved. That's what this is. I love you like Paul loves these people, like the Holy Spirit through Paul is loving these people. The elders of this church love you. The deacons of this church love you. So many of you who lead ministries and so on, you love each other. You do this because you love these people. We love you. I desire you to see you grow and to know Christ more fully. I desire for you to have peace and joy and rejoicing like we're talking about here. Ultimately, it's as simple as this. I want you to have every bit of the relationship with Jesus Christ that I have and more. I want more and more for you. That means sometimes we're going to admonish you. That seems to mean sometimes we're going to encourage you. Sometimes we're just going to stand beside you and not say anything because you just need me there. I'm going, to, I'm going to love you. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to be there for you. But it's all because I love you. Now, sometimes I think people think that because I am loud and because I preach the, the word somewhat prophetically that that means that I'm kind of harsh or that I have an expectation that people should be perfect or that you shouldn't come here unless you already meet some standard. That's not true. Just preaching the word to myself as well as to you. We need to grow. I want that for you. God loves you. If you're you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, understand that this is the kind of love that he has for you. That you're his enemy, no question about that. That you've rebelled against him, that you really have sinned, and yes, it really is a big deal, and yes, you really are separated from God, but that that can change today. That Jesus Christ has died for you and paid, has atoned for, has paid for your sins. And that you can be with him forever. You can have this life that we're talking about, this life of believers. This life of the body of Christ. If that's you and you don't know him, today's your day. Well, thanks for listening to that Acts Church sermon. We hope you got a lot out of it. If you did, we'd love it if you would comment or Give us a review or give the track a like. Uh, It really means a lot to us to hear back from people who have um, heard these sermons and have been impacted by it. So share your story with us. Share what is happening in your life um, that this is speaking into. And remember, you can subscribe to our iTunes podcast or through SoundCloud so that you can get all of our releases as soon as they come out. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with more next week.